So for the last last year, I mean, we really kind of set off something last January, very much purposely looking through a lens of living lives as disciples in the city of Los Angeles. Um, everything we did last year was meant to be seen and done for that reason. Um, we started off after Terry's, we went to discipline on silence and solitude, a practice we want to do to engage that. Then we talked through the history of basically the whole arc of the story of salvation found in the Bible, um, focusing in on God's restorative presence coming to live amongst us. Then we looked at how that lives itself out in the church and the practices we do together to support that life of discipleship. And then we went into a long series over the course of the summer looking at Jesus through a number of different lenses with the idea of looking at this person who is the center of this life of discipleship, wanting to catch him like a stone from many directions to see his beauty in different ways. All of this was done looking at this kingdom we've been called to live in. And it's a kingdom that is fascinating. That's where Terry's uh, kind of recapped over the start of this year. Um, It's a kingdom that's beautiful. It's a kingdom where we see God's purpose that he poured out into humanity, this value he put in this little thing that he created in the midst of all of this, a purpose that we destroy, but then he has doggedly pursued its restoration again and again and again. We see it as a kingdom where every tear will be wiped away where disease will be gone, where the sin and the things that we struggle with will be done away with for good, and we will live forever in the presence of God. This is the beauty of the kingdom we talk about and that we want to live as disciples of. But then we also notice there's a disconnect because we believe in this kingdom, but we don't have to lock the door to keep this place from filling up. People are not knocking down the doors, chasing this kingdom down. It's not just out there. We look in our own lives and we see multiple places where The kingdom just doesn't seem to penetrate the way that we know it should. And we know that's partially also the reason why the doors aren't getting knocked down, that we are sometimes lousy representatives of Jesus in the world. But this has been the case throughout history. The church has never, it's charged forward in many places, it's still charging forward in spots in the world now. But it's always had resistance, it's always had people who hear the same message and don't respond the same way. And it's not simply that we are always been bad representatives of Jesus because the best representative of Jesus was Jesus and he faced the same thing. He found resistance to his message. So there's a tension between a wonderful Messiah and a beautiful kingdom, something that we see as being innately good and the reception we see in the world and in our own lives. The Gospel of Mark drives this point home very well. I love the Gospel of Mark. It is such such a well-structured book. Um, Mark doesn't have a lot of teaching. It's It's the shortest, but what he lacks in teaching, he packs into the way the story is structured. It opens with a very clear declaration of who we're talking about. Just so that there's no confusion, the first line of the Gospel which I should have turned to already, was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark doesn't offer much commentary throughout the book. He occasionally corrects a term, but he's by and large a quiet narrator. But he opens with a very direct statement. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
And then it continues on. He goes through Old Testament prophecies talking about this kingdom that's coming. And then he has John the Baptist announcing this kingdom that's coming and people are flocking to him. Then Jesus gets baptized and no one less than God himself says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We're off to a good start. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness and successfully resists the devil. He does what Israel failed to do. And this is all before his public ministry even starts. And the start of his public ministry is equally good. He calls disciples successfully. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He is creating such a stir and crowds are flocking to him at such a level that he can't even go into the cities anymore. That's all within the space of chapter one. Mark wants us to see the positive light of who this person is who's finally come there. And he wants us to see it because then chapter two starts where Jesus again does something miraculous. He heals a paralytic. He heals a man who can't walk. And beyond that, he forgives his sins. But some grumble. Some people start to resist. And the rest of chapter two is a continued step as that resistance becomes more and more overt and more verbal. And then chapter three opens with people just outright ready to kill him. We've gone from Jesus Christ, the son of God, to this guy's healing on the Sabbath. Let's go away and figure out how to kill him in two and a little bit of a chapters. And that is the way chapter three kind of fluctuates back and forth. He successfully calls his disciples. He gets the apostles together, these people who are gonna take his message out to the world. And the existing religious leaders accuse him of doing the things he's doing by the power of Satan. His own family thinks there's something wrong with him and comes to bring him back to take care of him. And he looks at them though, and there's people flocked to his feet. And he says, this is my family. This is my mother, my brother, my sisters, these who do the will of God. So we have this dichotomy constantly going through it. And then Mark enters into the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't give us many teachings of Jesus. He has a few extended segments. This is the longest in chapter four. And he doesn't want us to forget that tension as we get to this. this is, he's placed these teachings here in light of that tension. And that's where we pick up with the passage for today, at the start of chapter 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Another seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, 
and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So why are we doing this series? We're talking about the kingdom and the kingdom life. We're talking about living as disciples. So we thought a good way to do it would be to do what Jesus did and teach it through parables. A huge amount of Jesus' teaching is done in parables. He teaches this kingdom living through these things called parables. So we're going to be looking at about 15 of them. I actually don't remember the exact count, and I meant to look it up, but I didn't. Um, But we're doing about 15. I know it takes us through the middle of May. Um, Parables are a challenging um, item. They both look really simple on the surface, but the more you dig into them, the more confounding they become. Um, It was for this reason that some people say that they are the dream of a novice preacher and the nightmare of an experienced one. The novice gets all excited and then starts to get into it and realizes what a challenging thing we're dealing with. The interpretations of them can be difficult. And they can be difficult for a number of reasons that we'll get into. Um, So you might be able to guess that I did the scheduling because I gave myself the one with the interpretation. Just makes things a little easier when I I don't have to deal with what is the seed, what's happening here, because Jesus goes on and tells me. Terry can deal with all the rest of them. I mean, it's fairly simple. Jesus is talking about a word that gets proclaimed. That word lands in a variety of soils. Some people hear the word, never really hear the word. It gets taken away before anything happens. And some people, it takes a shallow root, but then when persecution comes, it withers away. And other people hear that word and it starts to bear fruit, but then the cares of the world start to choke it out. But the people where it finds good soil, it goes on and bears good fruit 30, 60, 100 times over. It's simple. We can now sit in silence for 30 minutes. That's how much time we've saved here. But as I said, these things look simple on the surface, but once you start to dig, they become challenging. And it's part of the design. It's part of the reason Jesus uses them the way that he uses them. I mean, we can start out where Jesus says the thing that is sown is the word but he's not consistent with his own metaphor. I mean, look at verse 16. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Do you see where he changes there? You can switch ones for word to see how it works. And these are the words sown on the rocky ground, the words who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. He seems to be switching from a word sown to a people that the word is sown into. So which is it? Is it a people or is it a word? And it seems kind of important to how we understand a thing about something being sown. 
And it's important that we understand this parable because he says, for some reason, this parable, the degree to which we understand this parable measures how we can understand all the parables. Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? What about the interpretation that I gave somehow implies that if we understand this parable, we can understand the rest of the parables? And again, that seems important in casting the entire interpretation we're looking at. And that doesn't even get to that introduction to the whole thing. For those outside, everything is given in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. They're given parables so that they don't hear, so that they don't turn, so that they're not forgiven. I mean, to be blunt, that doesn't sound very Jesus-y of Jesus. So what's going on in this passage? And this is when he's describing why he uses parables, which seems important to understanding what this parable means. So I never make anything simple. Um, so we're going to continue that pattern. What I want to do is look at those three questions and then circle back around and see how it casts light on the interpretation. To make things easier, we're going to take in reverse order. Because if we go in reverse order, if we look at it through this Isaiah passage that's challenging, then looking at how this parable is key, and then looking at what's sown, we'll finally start to answer each other. So it'll make it a little shorter of a sermon. Let me take a drink of water first. Let me figure out where I am in my notes. All right, first, when we're talking about this, this challenging introduction, which is verses 11 and 12, he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. To avoid answering that for a second, let's just consider what a parable is. Um, the interesting thing about looking at parables is when academics, theologians, try and come up with a nice, tight definition of what a parable is, at least one parable breaks their definition. Every time they try to ratchet it down to it's these sorts of things, you can find one thing that's referred to in the Bible as a parable that doesn't fit the model. Um, these are not something that's novel to Jesus. They were a common way of teaching around the era when he was teaching. Um, they even show up in the Old Testament. Um, the first one, I believe, is in Judges, which is the story where somebody gives a parable about a bramble and a tree and a fire. It's extremely confusing. Uh, the more famous one in the Old Testament is when Nathan confronts David after his adult adultery. He comes, David the king has committed adultery and to cover it up, killed a man, which is not good choices. But he's managed to successfully do this, he thinks. God sends a prophet, Nathan, to him. And the way Nathan uncovers this is he tells David a parable. He tells him a story about something else. And when David is fully outraged at it, he drops the switch and says, you are that man. So we see from that use, they, are, they have a prophetic use in the Old Testament. And in Jesus' use of them, he is, in a way, self-consciously taking on the mantle of a prophet. They also have a use that they are intended to poke at the person who's hearing them. There's something that is not simply meant to be heard, nor are they simply meant to carry an idea. Nathan could have gone to David and simply said, seriously, you committed adultery, then killed a guy. But he came to him in the method of this story. 
And there was something to the medium that was important to the message where you can't just strip the propositions out and still have the same thing. And that's how parables work. There's something about the forum they come that is intended to get under the skin of the hearer and provoke a change. My favorite nice summary on parables is called stories with intent which is the easiest way I have for thinking of parables. They are some sort of illustration that's given. A lot of them are narrative, a couple that aren't. As I said, they break the nice rules every way you go, but they have an intention of provoking some sort of change in the person that hears them. And they are making clear a secret. As Jesus says when he describes this, to you is given the secrets of the kingdom of God. This is the same word that gets translated mystery elsewhere in the Bible. It's an idea of something that needs to be revealed. It's not like a mystery or a secret in the sense of like a detective novel where somebody goes out with their magnifying glass and gets under it. It's basically saying that there's something innate to religion that requires revelation. It has to be told us. We would not know who God was save for God's self-revelation his self-revelation in nature, his self-revelation in the scriptures, his self-revelation in the spirit, his self-revelation in Jesus. We need this secret to be told to us, and that's part of what is being used for these parables are being used for. So it's something that's meant to provoke a change, and it's something that's meant to reveal a secret, but then Jesus talks in a way that makes it sound like they're meant to be deliberately obscure. And this is a place where context is extremely important. We have to remember who's talking. This is Jesus. And we have to remember that Jesus knows his Bible better than we do. Jesus knew his Old Testament. He knew it in its context. He knew where these passages sit in their verses. He is not a person who's going to take a verse about to people going away into exile, strip it from its context, crochet it onto a pillow, and make it his life verse. He knows the context of these things. So when he says this passage, he is drawing upon all that has been said. He knows where this sits. He knows the chapter that Mike read. He knows Isaiah 6, and he knows the book of Isaiah. So we have to consider what's going on in the passage he's quoting. That passage from Isaiah, it's in the sixth chapter, so it's near the beginning of the book, and it sits kind of as the call of Isaiah. It's his commissioning as a prophet. It's what he's sent to go do. So we have to ask the question, was Isaiah sent to declare an obscure message so that people wouldn't understand it? If you listen to Tim Mackey's series on Jonah, he talks about Jonah's uh, sermon to Nineveh. I think it's like seven words. And his basic argument is, Jonah was deliberately being obtuse so that Nineveh wouldn't repent. Is that what we think Isaiah is doing here? And if we look at how Isaiah, but if we look at the book of Isaiah and we look at where Isaiah shows up in other books, the answer is no. He was clear enough to his contemporaries that when enemies are at the gate, they come to him because they know they can get an answer. He's clear enough in the way he writes that Mike Spielman, six months after being baptized, can give a talk on Isaiah 1 and basically nail the main premise. It's not that challenging. And that wasn't an insult to Mike, sorry. <laughs> but it was six months in. This wasn't like after years of arcane study and getting to know the, the deep Hebrew. It was on the surface. So Isaiah is not being deliberately obtuse. You can read Isaiah. You can read Isaiah three millennia after he wrote it and still get it, yet his contemporaries resisted it. Isaiah is coming to preach a message of repentance to Israel. In chapter one, the one that Mike 
give a very good talk on. He's basically talking about how their fake religion, the fact that they come and pay lip service to God so they can go do what they want. That shows up again and again. He's calling them away from that, but they stiffen their necks to it. They stiffen their necks in a way that it's like they never even heard. They stiffen their necks against it to a point at which God has to come and simply remove them from the land and take them into exile. But even that passage ends with a promise. The holy seed remains on the stump. So that's the language. It's a hyperbolic, sarcastic language, which the Bible uses far more often than we give it credit for. It's a much funnier book than it gets or its rap. But it's calling attention to how bad the response is going to be. Isaiah is going to go speaking clearly, speaking a message of repentance, but it's going to be as though the people who heard him never actually heard. So when Jesus uses it, he's using it in a similar manner. By the time, by Jesus' day, through Jewish tradition, this has become a shorthand for a ministry that doesn't get its reception. And Jesus is saying it in that manner to draw upon that attention, basically saying, same thing's happening here. I'm speaking clearly. He is sowing the seed everywhere. And it's as though they never even heard. He's drawing on the Isaiah passage to take up the man, to tie himself to the prophet. He too is a prophet. He's the great prophet who has come. He's taken up the Isaiah passage to speak of the reception. His message will also not be heard by a huge chunk of the people who he speaks to. He's also pointing to the consequences of that. He's tying to the passage of judgment, the judgment portion that sits in that Isaiah passage. These people in Jerusalem and the people who hear Jesus' word, it's not, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't matter how they respond to it. And he's tying it to tie it into that holy seed that will remain after all have rejected this message. Something still remains that gives hope. So that's why we have this passage. Jesus is not saying he gives it to be obtuse, nor does he give his parables to be obtuse. His enemies understand his parables. When the scribe asks him, about who's his neighbor, he tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the scribe gets it. Later on in the book of Matthew, he's going to give the parable of the tenants to his enemies, and they're going to understand he's talking about them. Mark's not trying to paint a picture of Jesus speaking to be misunderstood. He's explaining Jesus will be misunderstood the same way Isaiah was. And this goes beyond his teachings. Note that he says, where does he say it? Oh, man. This is a good point. Seriously. There we go. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. He doesn't say, for those outside, all my teachings are in parables. Everything is in parables. These guys don't make mistakes with the words they're using. They're deliberate. Everything is in parables. It's not simply that Jesus' message will be misunderstood. Everything Jesus does will be misunderstood. Jesus lives his life as a story with intent. He goes out and does things to provoke a response, to proclaim something. He heals people to proclaim something. 
and some rejoice, and some grumble because he's doing it on the Sabbath. He goes out and he casts out demons to say something about what's coming. And some marvel at his authority, and others accuse him of making a backroom deal with Satan to pull this off. He does this in the company he keeps. He does this in all of the ways he lives, and it's received by some, but for some, the word just bounces off of them like a BB on a tank. It's as though they never even heard it. They never understand him. And that gets towards the second item, where Jesus says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And note the context. They don't, I misread this forever. It wasn't until preparing for this that I noticed it. They don't ask him about this parable here. They don't come to him. It doesn't say when they were alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable or this parable. It's about the parables. And it's plural in the Greek. I checked. They come to ask him about the parables. We read it as this parable because that's the one he gives the interpretation after. And it follows one parable. But for reasons I'm not going to go into, and it pained me to cut this because it had a really nice Dunkirk illustration in it, he is talking about all his parables here. They are coming here to ask him, why are you talking in parables? What is it with the parables? And that's the context in which this falls. Jesus is the one who brings up this parable to describe why he's talking about parables. Just to give away, I think this section actually takes place later and Mark's brought it forward to explain. That's why you have Jesus on the shore teaching, somehow alone with his disciples, back on the shore teaching on the same day. If there's one thing that doesn't happen, Jesus doesn't get away from crowds easy, nor does he separate himself. He gets in trouble for not taking meal breaks. So Mark seems to have taken something from later and brought it forward to when we'd understand it, which is why they're asking about parables and why he's explaining this one. I did it shorter. I like the longer version better. But he's asking about parables. So that's what the context of this is when Jesus brings this up. And that's what the context is for this Isaiah passage. Inside of Isaiah, he's explaining why he's talking in parables, not why about this particular parable. What's it up with parables, Jesus? To use been given this kingdom of God, but for them, everything else remains in parables. And like Isaiah, it's not going to get heard. And then he gets to this parable which is a parable about reception. This is the key parable, not because it unlocks other parables. It's not like you get this one and you somehow get a decoder ring mailed to you where you can go through and slowly turn it and figure out what all the other parables mean. All about Ovaltine. It is a key because it talks about how we receive. It shows that the reception is important. And what kind of reception? It's a key because we have to ask, how do these people understand this parable? I mean, if the key is understanding this parable, how do you come to understand this parable? How do the people who followed him come to understand this parable? He tells them. It's not because they're geniuses or they get some stroke of God lightning and they suddenly understand this parable and therefore they are the ones who will understand everything else. No, these are the people who after the crowds have departed, gather near to Jesus and say, what's up with the parables? They keep following him until they understand it. 
and he tells them. The secret to understanding this parable is drawing near enough to Jesus so he can teach you. The secret to understanding all the parables is drawing near enough to Jesus so he can teach you. And that's how we see those outside. This seems to be really harsh language. To those outside, it remains in parables. Like Jesus has just slammed the door and they're stuck outside. These aren't the unlucky outcasts with whom Jesus has refused to, to share. I said to sow. That's what I meant. He's sowing the seed everywhere. This seed hits them. These are the people who by their own volition stand outside and don't draw near. Mark has just used this exact phrasing. This phrase, he uses a phrase to describe the people who are with him, and it's a strange phrase. He says, those around him, which doesn't sound strange to us, but it shows up, around him shows up four times in the whole Bible. And you're talking about a thing that talks about crowds a lot. It's not how you generally describe a crowd. Mark uses it the most, and he uses it here, and he uses it just prior to this. When he talks about the family that's outside and those gathered around him. When he says, his family's calling to him outside, and he says, who is my family? And he looks at those gathered around him, and he says, this is my mother, my brother, my sisters, those who do the will of God. Mark wants us to see, again, the same comparison. Those outside, those gathered around. The gathering around is not Jesus pulling things apart. It's those who come to Jesus, sit at his feet, and learn from him. Those who come to him to learn what the will of God is to do it. It's not something based on something innate and born to you. His family is the ones outside, his mother and his brother his, and his sisters, and we know he loves them. But when he talks about who the people who are gathered around him, these are the people who are doing the will of God. The key to understanding parables is Jesus. It's drawing near to Jesus to learn from him with the intention of doing the will of God because he's the one who can instruct you in it. And that's where this understanding of the parables is not an abstract fact. There are people much, 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 much smarter than me who could break down every aspect of these parables. They can talk about what they meant in the language. They can tie it to ancient Middle Eastern farming techniques, although there is a wonderful argument. They always like to argue about whether or not this is a good um, farming method. And they basically are like, we're not sure. Uh, it depends on whether, whether he was going to till the ground before or after. So just a little tidbit there. Um, but it is not enough to simply be able to say all the aspects of the details of these parables, to be able to recite them back, to be able to write papers. Our goal for this series is not that you would all be able to give nice talks on parables or be able to score 100 on your parable test at the entry to heaven, which doesn't happen. It's to understand these parables is to let that intent happen, to let it get under your skin such that you do the will of God. That is the understanding, and that's why they hear, but they don't hear. They see, but they don't perceive. They know the words. They know what he's talking about. But the little bits and pieces never quite fit together in such a way because they don't understand the thing that holds them all together. 
So they have the bits and pieces, but as time passes, they just crumble and fall to the the wayside. And that understanding they had is like it never existed. It's like they never heard. The thing that holds them together is Jesus. It's coming to Jesus as king of his kingdom to do his will. And with that, we can see, get to that last question, and we can see that it's ultimately moot. Does he sow a word or does he sow people? Yeah. He sows a word and it creates people. He sows people through a word. When that good seed, when that good word hits soil, it creates a people. It's taking that holy seed, throwing it back into the ground and bringing up a new body. And that's what it is. To understand parables is to be sown as a person. That's why we're doing this series. It's why we put this parable first. That's why I put this parable first. It wasn't simply because I wanted to have the interpretation. It's because we need to understand where this series is driving at or else we aren't going to get it. We don't want, again, we don't want just to be smarter parable speakers. We want to have lives that are transformed. And the key to that is coming to receive from Jesus. It's coming to let him unpack what this is. So Jesus comes. He comes sowing a word. He comes announcing a kingdom. He comes proclaiming truth. And the question is, what receives it? It's a revealing of a mystery that becomes clear as we draw near. There were mystery religions all over the Near East at this time. All over. It was a common thing that these mystery religions where there was this knowledge that you could have that was being revealed. And these religions were such that usually what you could do is you got brought in as initiate, and as you grew in it, you got more and more of that knowledge. It was closed to those outside, but known by those on the inside. We can think of modern parallels. Christianity was perceived like that, but the weird difference for the Christians was they couldn't keep their mouths shut about what the secrets were. They constantly talked about it. Jesus constantly goes, throwing the seed, telling everybody what's going on. He is oddly quiet at the opening portions by exactly who he is. It's like he wants that one thing to dwell, and that's really how this works. You get to know Jesus, and you get to know more of Jesus, and then you get to know more of Jesus, and you get to know more of Jesus. To those who have, more will be given. To those who don't, they lose even that little bit. That seed they have gets taken away. But it comes, and it's given liberally. So with that in mind... What do we get about the interpretation? What do we come back and see at that? I mean, again, it is, to some extent, exactly what it was. It is as simple as it gets stated, and that's the way the parables work. They are simple at a level, and then they just dig under your skin. It is about hearing a word. It's about hearing something proclaimed liberally out there, just cast where it goes. But it's about what the reception is. And Jesus lays out three ways of not receiving this. The first is to really just never give it a hearing.
And this is where I lived the first 20-odd years of my life. I had heard of Christianity. I officially grew up a Christian because I was Southern. Um, but I had rejected Christianity. And what I had rejected was nothing that resembled Christianity. And I'm not saying that if you had actually outlined all the truths of Christianity to me, I would have gone, oh, that sounds fantastic. I would have rejected a lot of those too. But the thing I was rejecting was a semi-weird version of Christianity that had some vague connection to the truth. It was like a funhouse mirror version, but I, and I saw no reason to dig deeper than that. I thought I knew what I was talking about. Only idiot to believe that, and I moved along, and I probably would still be there had God not hit me in the head with a two-by-four, metaphorically speaking. And if that's where anybody sits right now, I mean, my encouragement is to look deeper. This is a religion that has been adhered to by billions of people throughout the ages, many smarter than you, many smarter than any of us. I'm not saying that makes something true. If not, popular music wouldn't work the way it is. But it is something that means it maybe should be looked at and given a deeper uh, glance than I gave. There's a very decent chance that the thing you're rejecting has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. It's always that thing that it's like somebody says, I don't believe in God. You can ask them who they're talking about because we probably don't believe in them either. So give it a deeper look. And there's also people then who hear it positively. And I think to some extent what these people often accept is the very version of Christianity that I rejected when I was a kid. It's something shallow. It's something without any roots. It's unexamined. It makes them really happy and feel good for a while, but when something challenges that good feeling, they drop it as quickly as they picked it up. It couldn't sustain them. It couldn't stand in light of how the world actually works. And if your Christianity is there, if, you're no, if you sit here with a Christianity knowing there's lots of dark rooms that you'd rather not examine, my urge would be to examine them, to move towards them, not to do it alone. Don't go pick up the best book you can find. Come alongside people who you know have looked into those rooms. Come alongside the church and draw near to Jesus as the one who can reveal this. Keep your mind on the fact that he sits at the center of all of this. But it's better to do it now than to just let things slowly wilt and wave, fade until life actually gets challenging. We want fades that are sturdy. We want fades that can sustain persecution or a challenge or loss. And it also means those of us who are Christians need to be very careful to not soft pedal the gospel. We need to be very resistant to a bait and switch form of evangelism. Be upfront. Does this make your life better? It does. And it does that while rewriting your definition of what good is. I think my first two years of Christianity largely seemed like a string of constant loss to me. I lost friends. I lost a girlfriend. I lost a job. I was at the bottom going, how on earth was this a benefit? But what I found was something far more worthwhile. We need to be careful we don't present Christianity in a way that we just hope we can get them across the line and then maybe get to the hard parts later. I remember to use him twice in the same sermon. Spiel's 
six months prior to baptism when we were talking and he's like, the sexual ethic of Christianity can't do it. And my response was, you will if you do it, but not to push any further. I'm like, this, I didn't want to back down on what it actually was. Try and say, it's, ah, it doesn't mean all those things. It actually is this. But it's simply going, that's what it is. I didn't think I could do it either. My, when I got saved, my basic response was, okay, God, you got to kill me in a year because that's the longest I can hold on. And here I am 17 or some odd years later. But we want to be upfront about what we're talking about because we're proclaiming good news. We want it to be perceived as good news and not a bait and switch once people get inside and realize, oh, wait, this actually asks something of me. I mean, it's the old baptismal confession is, do you renounce the world and Satan and all his works? It's upfront about the fact that there's a dividing line when you choose Jesus. And finally, there's people who receive this word for a duration. This is the saddest group. This is the group who actually hear and understand. It's the group that has a deep enough root that it can make it through persecution. And you can see those two are quick. The birds snatch it away instantly. It never even really gets heard. Or the sun comes and it withers. It's like it withers over years. It withers quickly. It just falls away. But these people in this third group, it slowly gets choked. There's something that should give life. It's found good enough ground, but there's things that just come around it and slowly and silently over the years choke that life out. And I guess the biggest risk for us in this room, it's definitely the biggest risk for me up here. Um, I want to make those things the, how's Jesus phrased them? the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, the cares of the world, I want to make them into sinful, bad things that are obvious with glaring neon signs that just basically say Vegas on them. I want it to be very clear, and I want to do most of the things I care about, push them out of it. This was actually a really odd three weeks for me to be preparing this sermon. Um, for those, Everyone knows this, well, almost everyone, this is not my day job. Um, everyone else now knows. Um, I have a very, very full day job, and it has been three of the most intense weeks of work I have had in a long time. I managed to spend a ridiculous amount of my company's money on Friday night um, after a long process of getting there. And in the midst of it, I'm trying to prepare a sermon about not letting things, other concerns strangle it. And I'm not saying my job is bad. I like my job, I do good work, I enjoy it, but we tend to think that when this is applies is it's when my job starts to kill other things. It's when I'm working 70 hours a week and ignoring my kids and having an affair, my work's out of hand. This is saying something before that. And that's what I started to feel this week, these three weeks. And that's when we need to be more concerned. It's not the people who, if you hate your job, you're pretty safe from idolatry of your job. For the longest time, I had zero concern about my job in this verse. It just wasn't a risk. It was boring. I did it because they paid me, and I didn't do it when I didn't have to. I still did it well because I'm a perfectionist. But it wasn't a driving thing. I was about other things. And my job has steadily become more and more interesting. I get 95% of my work decisions made either in the shower or driving. Partially because it's finally quiet, 
but it also shows that when I'm driving, I'm thinking about my job. And I'm not obsessing about it, like trying to figure out how am I gonna make it. I was harassing my boss at nine o'clock on Friday night to get him to sign something. I was working, not because he wanted me to work, I was working to make sure he was working to finish something I wanted to get done. I enjoy what I do, but it means I need to be even more careful on this. As I started to feel the pressures coming in and just this becoming my concern, this becoming the thing I'm thinking about while I'm driving, this becoming the thing I'm thinking about while I'm in the shower, I needed to double down and fight to, to resist letting this choke out the life of it. This is when spiritual disciplines become extremely important. We have this idea that at some point there is a season when things will finally get back to normal and I can get about the things of God. I'm still waiting for that season. It's like 40 years now, and the last time I saw it was when I was 22 and I had a summer break. Ever since then, life has been one continual stream of amping up challenging challenges. And at some point, I finally realized there wasn't a simpler season coming. I mean, maybe it comes when I retire. But that's a long way from now. So I need to be cognizant of that and fight now. I need to resist now. I need to seek the things that will work now. Seasons are important, but what the seasons should tell us is what we can do to fight, not I'll fight when the season changes. What do I need to do in this season to maintain my life with God? Not this season will end and I can finally maintain my life with God. Different seasons, different things. My wife is about to have a child as I announced to all of you. Once that kid's born, she will have much, much less time on her hands. And I've seen this happen each time. She has to change the way she interacts with God. But she each time has remained diligent to find some avenue to interact with God. People sometimes push against the discipline part of the spiritual disciplines word. I want to call them spiritual practices. But they are spiritual disciplines. There's something you do that's good for you that you do when you don't want to do it. That's when it's most important. A Sabbath doesn't matter unless you're trying to work. It's really easy unless you're trying to work to have a Sabbath. But when you're trying to work, when you have to remind yourself that you're not supposed to work, that's when you need the discipline of having a Sabbath. And I am militant about that. I make exceptions the same way Jesus says when the thing falls in the well, you can save it. But generally speaking, I don't work on Sundays. I stop Saturday night, and I won't wash dishes from Saturday night until Sunday night. It took, my, it took me a while to get my wife over the hump on that one. But it's been important because I started to go insane one time because I was doing something I loved when I was in grad school, but I couldn't stop thinking about it unless I had the discipline to turn off and also admit that I might fall behind against my peers. I was going to go insane. I had to fight over this stretch to make sure I maintained my um, reading of Scripture, even though it got much, much smaller. I am officially behind in the Bible reading plan I'm running. Not massively behind, but I am behind because I've been reading less than I'm supposed to. I read the Psalm, and I read a little bit of Jeremiah, which is not easy fast reading. But it's just trying to maintain just a little because what I also needed to make time for was I needed to make time for silence because I had no silence on my drive and I had no silence in the shower because my job kept going. 
And I wasn't trying to shut down because, again, my job's not bad, and I need to have the time to think about that. But that means I needed to make time to simply sit before God and say, I will stop working so that you can work, and I will sit silent before you. And that's what I urge us to do. We have to make time. Don't tell yourself there is a season coming when you'll finally get there. Figure out what this season allows. In order to make time for that, I had to go to bed earlier. Because we realized at one point I wasn't sleeping, partially because my wife is trying to freeze me to death, which we fixed. But I also, I was just staying up late because I was working hard and I get done to the end of my day and I'm like, okay, I finally want to relax. And there's two sci-fi anthologies on Netflix and Amazon and I love sci-fi anthologies. So I wasn't sleeping the way that I was, which meant I was waking up later than I was supposed to, which means the time I needed to spend with God was getting squeezed out of my day. So I had to basically go, I'll finish Black Mirror later. Someday. But we need to make those trade-offs. Figure out where you are in what season of life you are, whether you have young kids, whether you have larger kids, whether you have a busy job or whether you're in a lull. Figure out what you need to do to make sure the life of God that's inside of you doesn't get choked out because it doesn't come announcing itself. It's silent and it's slow and it strangles and you wake up 10 years from now wondering why Christianity doesn't make any sense anymore. But the ultimate point of this passage, there are three ways this fails. The ultimate point of this passage is not that it fails. It's that it yields fruit. Jesus doesn't come here announcing this, guys, it's gonna suck. Look at all the ways you can fail, but hang in there, there's a great future awaiting us. He comes and he says, there are ways this can fail, but when it doesn't do that, it yields fruit that basically range from good to better to absolutely magnificent. A seed yields a bountiful harvest. Seeds go in the ground, and when they come up, they don't produce a seed. That plant died off a long time ago. They produce a myriad of seeds. They go on and produce fruit again and again. Peter needed to hear this. Peter is going to basically spend the rest of this gospel screwing up. And he never really gets around in this one. Does better in the other books. But he comes. He's following Jesus now. But he's not hearing the messages Jesus is saying. They bounce off of him. Jesus tells him something, bounces off. He doesn't, he, it's like he never heard it. When persecution comes, he denies Jesus and runs away. We see Jesus, Peter, doing all these things, but he needs to hear this because he needs to know that if he comes back to Jesus, if he hears how the parables are understood, if he draws near to the foot of Jesus, he will understand again, he will be restored, and his life will bear fruit. He takes the gospel on Pentecost. He takes the gospel to the Samaritans. He takes the gospel to the Gentiles, one seed. It gets sown into one man, and it goes forth and bears fruit. It can get sown into one family and produce a line. This is something that get, bears fruit. It's something that is inevitable. When that seed finds good soil, it bears fruit. We're going to get to those parables later, so I won't steal Terry's thunder, but it is inevitable. It bears something that does not measure up with the size of what gets put in the ground. It's a word that brings about a life. 
So the urging here is to look at these warnings, to look at the soils that are not bearing fruit, to look at them and to understand, to understand what goes on in the world, to understand what goes on in our hearts, to hear that and to respond to it and to fight against that, to draw near to Jesus, to be taught. But it's to do that knowing that there's a harvest, knowing that no matter how long the ground looks like nothing's sprouting up, something well. It's instructed that the one that sprouts up quickly is the one that doesn't last. The people who are like, yeah, it's me, are usually the first ones gone. It's the ones who weigh this. Sometimes it looks like the soil does nothing. Sometimes there's places in your life where it seems like there's no transformation, but change is happening if the Spirit of God dwells within you. So hear that and know this kingdom will bear fruit, and it can bear fruit in your life. So draw near to Jesus because he's the key to all. Amen. Terry. It's kind of getting intimidating to preach after Brian these days. Um, well done, Brian. It was excellent. He ended with this idea of that we need to draw near those that are around Jesus and that we can, you know, if we found ourselves drifting, we can always come back to be around Jesus. Um, and when we come to the Lord's Supper, to the table, it's, it's our community opportunity to remind ourselves that we come around Jesus. We come around what Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. Um, this life that was sown into the world on our behalf. And unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it doesn't pr produce fruit. And so when we come to the table, we are reminding ourselves of seed that was sown, that died and produced new life. And so as we come to the table today, I want to... Brian touched on this, and if, you, if, you, if any of you have started reading the book, the, the, the Pursuing God, he speaks about this parable a little bit, and he speaks about how generous God is that he just throws seed. The God that we serve is generous. He's not only generous in that he sows all the seed, but he's generous in his person so that when we find ourselves having drifted or fallen away when we say we want to come back and be around he is generous to receive us we will get to the parable of the prodigal son he's a generous god he's so seed when you come to the table you can come today and say i screwed up this week i've sinned i've done all these things but when you repent he is generous to forgive and to allow fruit to once again be birthed in your life. None of you are disqualified from coming to the table because it's the table that actually shows that he's done something for the disqualified to qualify us. Does that make sense? So let's come to the table, take the cup, break the bread, go back, sit there, sit, sit for a little while in silence and ponder. There's a lot in that talk. There is so much. But ponder a little bit. Ponder anew. How's that line go? What that the Almighty can do. Ponder anew what, what God can do.
Is that all right? So in the, in the, the words of Brian Moon, form a line. <laughs> Come and take, go back, ponder, sit, and then we'll, I'll pray and we'll eat together as a reminder that we are community.